0: When I first moved to New York City in 1999, there was a church that everyone went to in Brooklyn. Well, at least all of Black Wall Street, which was my community at the time. And we all went to the eight o'clock service because if we went to the 11, you never knew when you were gonna get out. But so we went to the eight o'clock and it was just a few blocks down from where I lived.
1: And as someone who wasn't really churched
0: as a child, with the notable exception of whenever I would visit my grandparents in Connecticut. uh, I really craved church, and that church gave it, it gave church. (laughs) But as I started going every week, I noticed something that I was too naive then to realize happens all the time in church. The words might change from here to there, but the sermon itself, I realized was always the same. And if you didn't come that often, It probably wouldn't matter because he had a lovely and rousing cadence, and he'd get to shouting, and we'd all get on our feet, and we just loved that, so it didn't really matter. But I was confused that it didn't seem to matter what the text actually said, but his point was always going to be the same. And I was pretty critical of that at the time, I think because I expected and wanted more surprise and variety, I wanted to be entertained a bit more, I didn't want to be able to anticipate where the word would go week in and week out. Now, fast forward 20 something years, and now I preach 52 weeks a year and special services too, and I think I have actually changed my tune. Talk to any honest preacher and they will admit this little secret to you. We all just have one sermon. We just use different words. In homiletics or the study of preaching, a sermon is sometimes called a homily. That's where that word comes from. Good homileticians will teach you always to have something that you give people to take home in their pocket something they can pull out of their pocket throughout the week to get through and make the story, whatever story you're going to tell, make enough sense that God can be a continued blessing through the word that you offer. That's always what I'm trying to do when I stand before you. Yet, I still have just one sermon. And what Jesus is teaching us in this passage from Matthew, though, is this. If you've only got one thing to say, you better get it right. And at least according to Jesus, the one thing that people in my position have to say tends to be wrong, tragically wrong. So I'm going to let you in on my one sermon. God loves you no matter what. God loves you Now live your life and do something about that love because no matter what, God loves you and you can. That's my one sermon. It always is the same. And that's pretty much the pocket point of everything I preach, which I firmly believe I do get from the gospels and from Jesus himself, but that's not what Jesus is seeing in houses of worship or hearing in pulpits. Instead, he's hearing what we call proof texting. And proof texting is when we decide on God's behalf what the people should hear and then retroactively fit the text to suit our purposes, okay? It's when we make the text speak for us instead of speaking for God. That's another way of putting it. And I think the only true reading of the Word of God is to connect you to the truth and manifestation of God's unending love. If your reading of scripture doesn't bring you closer to God, then just keep reading, keep praying. And if anybody's trying to take you away from that love, stop listening. Let the word transform you well. But if our one sermon doesn't involve God's unconditional love, then when we come to the word, we'll need to contort it into something that God never intended. And Jesus hates this. He hates it. He says when we do this, we make void the word of God. We pollute each other's spirits. We toxify the Bible. We pray with our lips and not with our hearts, and that's not of God. I once served a church under a leader who made a fascinating move to pull prayers out of business meetings for the church. Why? Because the meetings would always start and end with a prayer, uh, sandwich prayers, as he put it. There was always the sandwich prayers, but everything in the middle of that sandwich would not necessarily reflect the spirit of the prayers. In other words, the business was so distinct from the prayer that it was actually disingenuous to offer prayers at all. And instead of sandwich prayers, then what this church decided to do was to conduct church business at a special time that began and ended with worship so that the worship structure was the structure of the meeting. And so there would be hymns and songs and spiritual songs. And if you couldn't make it to worship, then you couldn't go to the meeting. It was a really interesting practice. And how did he pull that off? Well, the church had taken time to articulate a vision that supported that, that they grow in faith together. That was their vision, but it has, that's a simple set of words, but it has really complex implications. It means that in every interaction, they were making a commitment to growing in faith. It was their one sermon and it shaped everything. Conducting business, which means making decisions about how things operate, who we serve, how we get and allocate our resources, only could happen, they came to understand, in the context of the worship of God so that they could grow in faith together. Not in sandwich motions, but with their whole hearts, souls, and minds. And that actually requires a pretty steep discipline. But when we don't do this, prayer takes the shape of obligation rather than change. Have you ever heard a manipulative prayer? Have you ever made one? (laughs) I've never actually seen this in my seven years here uh, that I am honest with, but I have served congregations where people would ask you to pray with them and then we'd experience this whole litany of their grievances against each other. Have you ever seen this? So it would be like, oh God, help your servant Max such and such, to change his wicked ways. I mean, it would be like that, right? And in fact, if you Google passive-aggressive prayers, you're going to encounter a whole genre. In my cursory search, my favorite passive-aggressive prayer I found was uh, a very specific one where during the Kyrie, which is when you say, Lord, have mercy, it's the time of confession, the priest chanted, and I'm going to do, I'm going to mimic him here, From a blind attitude over the theft of work Xerox paper for personal use, Lord have mercy. And then the congregation goes, Lord have mercy. (laughs) And he had some others, but the other one I'm going to show you, uh, tell you about, is this one. From a temptation to cheat at golf tournaments by not reporting strokes or by a foot wedge, Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy, the congregation goes. I mean, what is this, right? And you know, when the congregation had to respond, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, there was somebody out there, one Xerox paper-taking saint, one golf player who knows what a foot wedge is, who knew exactly what that priest was thinking they had done wrong. And while this may all sound pretty silly or egregious, it's all fun and games until our prayers start to hurt us. Prayer that causes someone harm points to a human aim. Prayer that harms does not ever point to God. You got that? Fortunately, though, we do have a blueprint We have Jesus' own words and actions of correction with compassion, of healing, of mercy, with the love of God connecting it all. What, friends, is your one sermon? Early on in my time here, the park held a beautifully intentional visioning process that has guided every major decision that I've made in my seven years here, and our vision is quite simple. Here at the park, we follow Jesus together. We follow Jesus. And it sounds simple, and that is a simple statement. Simple to say, incredibly difficult to pull off. That is, unless we decide to incorporate that one vision, that one sermon, into everything that we do. Does this thing we want to do reflect what Jesus did? Does it reflect what he required? Does it reflect what he talked about? Does it mirror Jesus' priorities? Or does it get muddled up with human error? Does it cause harm? And maybe in order to know, we just need to understand and remember what Jesus' one sermon was. In his words, repent for the kingdom of God, the reign of God is at hand. And in my interpretation, Jesus's one sermon was, turn back to God's love, which has not, will not, and won't ever, ever fail you. Jesus wants us to turn back to God's love. And as we do, we honor God with our lives and not with our lips, because otherwise our praise is about Xerox paper and golf scores. And that's hypocrisy, it has nothing to do with God's glory. Thankfully, we can turn back. Turn back to the love that will never, ever, ever turn away from us. And that is the gospel truth. Let the church say, amen.